Hello and welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Nessler. Eric is the Dean for Academic and Scientific Affairs and the Director of the Friedman Brain Institute at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, New York. Eric uses molecular tools to study drug addiction and depression and is a co-author of four books, one of which I used to learn pharmacology, and more than 650 peer-reviewed articles. He also serves as principal investigator on six NIH grants. He is a busy guy. I decided to reach out to Eric after discussing his 1990 article, The Case of Double Supervision, with a few friends at the Al Shop, New Haven Institution. Eric and I completed psychiatry residency in the same program, and his article demonstrates how psychotherapy wasn't then and remains uh, somewhat less than data-driven. At the time, Eric uh, articulates in the article that he felt neuroscience was going to hopefully quickly revolutionize this concern, and yet so far it hasn't. And this is a feeling and also a hope that I've shared as a trainee, and now as a young clinical neuroscientist myself, I really enjoyed meeting with Eric and discussing how his views have changed or not 30 years after he published this piece. What struck me most about Eric was his candor and his gentle demeanor. Um, he explained how he was disappointed that neuroscience hadn't progressed as much as he had hoped when he was a resident or a young faculty member. And we discussed his multiple high-level leadership roles and how he, how he tried to promote innovation while still respecting and supporting institutional tradition. The entire hour with Eric was lovely, and I should mention that hanging on his office wall, he had his old Texas license plate. Uh, this is from his time as chair of the Department of Psychiatry at UT Southwestern in Dallas, which is where I was born, Texas. Eric is a, a mammoth of a scientist and thinker and person, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. So here we go, Eric Nessler. What was it that excited you about the molecular approach to mental illness? Because it seemed like that wasn't really mainstream. Not at all. In fact, psychiatry at that point, and we're talking about the early 1980s, was divided, I would say, into three general categories that were very well represented in the Yale psychiatry department. One was a focus on earlier uh, psychoanalytical approaches. A second was the realization that more practical approaches in community and hospital psychiatry were needed to take care of chronically ill patients. And the third was a neuroscience approach, which was basically focused on the range of medications that had been discovered by serendipity to help people with mental illness. When So you mentioned the community approach. Yeah. So how... I, I don't recall when the deinstitutionalization happened, yeah. but I feel like it wasn't sh that long before. No, it occurred in in uh, cons in concert with the introduction of medications. Right. So the, it occurred largely in the 1960s as these uh, new classes of antipsychotic drugs and antidepressant drugs and lithium were introduced, and it made it possible for people who were chronically severely chronically ill in asylums to be improved and then they were discharged 
to what was supposed to be a large community mental health effort, which really only partly materialized in the ensuing decades. Right. And something interesting about that, so you would have seen some of those patients. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, so the neuroscience and psychiatry in the early 1980s was extremely narrowly focused on neurotransmitters. Hmm. So serotonin for depression and dopamine for psychosis, and there was really little else going on. So you're absolutely right in that what appealed to me about psychiatry was the opportunity to weave in what was being taught to me in medical school at the time as molecular medicine, we would now call it precision medicine, uh, into the field of psychiatry. And in fact, my colleagues and I uh, were uh, brash and uh, unrealistic enough to imagine that um, when I joined the faculty at Yale in 1987 in creating the Laboratory of Molecular Psychiatry, that by bringing the tools of molecular biology to psychiatry, that we would fundamentally advance diagnosis and treatment of mental illness within five or 10 years. Here we are 30 years later and have not seen those advances. But that was the idea at the time. Right. And I think um, this is where it kind of weaves in nicely with kind of my own brash thinking and my own research career, right? As I think every you know young researcher imagines, yes. like I'm going to tackle a problem set and figure it out and, you know... Ten years later, <laughs> you can dust off uh, your jacket or something. Um, so, so this is this is very. You know, let me, so let me just add one further point to that: is that even though in the early 1980s, when I was finishing medical school and starting psychiatry residency, my professors in oncology and immunology were presenting this vision of molecular medicine, precision medicine. It really has taken the four decades since that time to achieve the goals. So we are now beginning, you know, so 30 years ago, 35 years ago, my professor said, we're going to cut out a person's tumor. We're going to uh, characterize it molecularly. This is before RNA sequencing and everything, but they were using older methods to profile molecular constituents of a cell. We're going to identify the networks of proteins that are important, make antibodies to the key protein, and that's going to be a treatment for that person's cancer. Well, it's taken 40 years. Right. So I don't feel too badly that in <laughs> sure. retrospect that psychiatry has lagged because psychiatry, the brain and psychiatry are orders of magnitude more complicated than a cancer cell. Right. You know, I completely agree and understand and I empathize with that. I, I would like to understand a little bit how this goal of yours, you know, to be able to profile and diagnose and treat on a molecular basis, how was that received at the time in psychiatry specifically? It, um, so I think I was seen as a uh, probably a curiosity <laughs> by much of the department. I was very much a provocateur. Mm -hmm. The article you cited of the case of double supervision, which we could come back to if you'd like, was very provocative mm -hmm. uh, to my psychoanalytical colleagues. 
Um, and, something that did catch my in your yeah. article and, you know, you being a provocateur did yeah. come through. There's a sentence in here I wanted to ask you about that if you disagreed, if a resident trainee, I'm assuming yeah. yourself, disagreed with a supervisor, they assumed that it was a reflection of your personal problems or right. level in training. My beef at the time, and I'm not close enough to this to know whether it's still relevant, is that psychotherapy was presented to me as a practice that almost held religious certainty on the parts of my supervisors who were teaching me how to do psychotherapy. And I uh, reacted against that. You could sense that religious. Yes. Of course, well, of course, because when I disagreed with them and my fellow residents disagreed with them, we were not only told we were wrong, but we were interpreted uh, at, at, for having personal weaknesses for even disagreeing with them. So that didn't make sense. Obviously, you know, if, if there's a medical treatment, if the psychotherapy works and it does, and it's a medical treatment, then it should be subjected to the same rules of practice and yeah. proof that every other medical treatment is subjected to. And so that's why, you know, we were pushing back a bit. Um, so what was your other point about... Um, I was curious how you combined your interest at yeah. that time. So, yeah. so actually, it was very painful, and it's remained painful over 30 years, in that it really, in my view, is not possible to combine the two worlds yet. Uh, and that um, I've spent 30 years now on the faculty teaching psychiatry residents the basics of neuroscience, and I am very sensitive to the fact that Everyone, the vast majority, virtually everyone's lifetime course of patient treatment does not have to intersect any fact of neuroscience or molecular biology. And that's a sad statement of the reality of the field of psychiatry, but I think it helps to be honest about that. Right. Well, do you view, like at the time, I could imagine you formulating a patient's condition. I mean, you mentioned serotonin and yep. dopamine, right? So at that time, it was clear that these medications affected dopamine and serotonin, like antipsychotics right. and antidepressants. Yep. Yep. And so was there a conversation even while you were a resident over the meaning of depression being yes. neurotransmitter? And so I think that, that those conversations definitely occurred when I was a resident and they continue today. And I feel perhaps that one of the contributions I've made over the years was pushing the field to taking a more sophisticated view of the brain and what it means to uh, act on the serotonin system. So take an antidepressant, for example. When I was a resident, we were really taught by the field of psychiatry that antidepressants boost serotonin levels and that uh, undoes a person's depression. Uh, almost as if a person who's depressed can pull up to the gas pump, have a pump put in their brains and squirt in serotonin. And I really feel that the vast majority of the field of psychiatry viewed antidepressant action in that way at the time. Despite the fact that at that very point in time, we knew that there were several collections of serotonin nerve cells in the brain each collection of cells send projections to partly overlapping different 
other areas of the brain and spinal cord, that there were 14 serotonin receptors, an advance made by molecular biology, in the mammalian brain that respond to serotonin, each of which is signaled uh, coupled differently to uh, post-receptor signaling pathways, each receptor expressed in a different array of neuronal and non-neuronal cells in the brain within these circuits. So that it really, and then finally, the fact that simply boosting serotonin acutely, one can show in brain imaging, again, not long after I joined the faculty, that antidepressants do boost overall serotonin synthesis in the brain after a few days of exposure to the drug, why aren't the clinical antidepressant effects seen for several weeks or months? No clinical change, right? Right. Yeah. And so all of these facts force the field to take a far more sophisticated view of how is it that an SSRI is actually producing an antidepressant effect. Now, in honesty, we still don't really know the answer to that question, but at least we have heuristic models that are accurate in terms of the cells, the circuits, and the time frame of the uh, adaptations induced by the drugs that might mediate their therapeutic effects. So, so at the time, there was just this general serotonergic hypothesis and the dopaminergic hypothesis about mm -hmm. these illnesses. Um, when did you begin to sense that it was much more complex than that? Like, was that when you were a resident or a, it a was when I was a resident and I had the wonderful opportunity to meet a few of my fellow residents around the country around the same time I'll mention two people in particular Steve Hyman and Rob Malenka <laughs> Steve was at Harvard Rob but then at UCSF now at Stanford and we became very good friends and had a very shared experience with uh, Rob and I have PhDs in neuroscience. Steve had extensive neuroscience training uh, otherwise. And the three of us realized that there was a disconnect between the neuroscience that was available and that was that which was being incorporated within the field of psychiatry. So I feel that we and others helped bridge those two gaps. What were those conversations like? Like, did y'all meet at a conference or? We met at conferences and... You know, part of it, frankly, was kind of making fun of the <laughs> lack of sophistication of some of our professors whose um, who's, uh, naivete about neuroscience and molecular biology was shocking to us mm -hmm. um, and being very provocative individuals. We reveled in that. <laughs> uh, and... Um, but it also turned to serious conversations. And in fact, so Steve Hyman and I wrote a book in 1993 that grew out of these conversations that started during residency. It's called The Molecular Foundations of Psychiatry that tried to lay out for the field uh, how a more sophisticated understanding of molecular biology and neuroscience could provide the underpinnings for psychiatry. Now, we were naive ourselves. Be because at the time, we imagined that there might be that this that the genetic basis of schizophrenia or autism or bipolar disorder would be very complicated. Thinking at the time, maybe there'd be five or ten genes involved. Right. Now we know there are many hundreds of genes involved. Right. 
when, how could you have known at that time without data, right? So I, I'm really curious what impact like this essay or, you know, your conversations and, uh, you know, you're publishing this book, uh, one of two books, I believe, that is on similar topics in mm -hmm. relating neuroscience to psychiatry. Mm -hmm. I mean, what sort of conversations did you have with uh, psychiatric colleagues who mm -hmm. maybe didn't share exactly your vision? Yeah. So I think that most people in the field were eager to incorporate new knowledge. And so, you know, my provocative side can be overstated because I really feel that I was fully embraced by the opinion leaders and power structure of the time. And I was treated extremely well by uh, leaders in the field. And I felt that, um, the papers that we wrote in the books that you mentioned were definitely uh, welcomed within the field. Um, I think at the same time, there are always people who remain old fashioned and resistant to change. I think that still is seen a bit today. And I don't know if you still see that in your residency training. I was at a recent meeting of the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology where we talked about psychiatric residency training. And now I'm an old man and I stood <laughs> up and basically gave a different perspective and said, one of the problems that we have in the field is attracting the best and brightest to psychiatry because we can't provide a clear path of integrating molecular biology neuroscience with the clinical care of our patients. And my gosh, I thought I wasn't being provocative. I got so much pushback from people, leaders in the field that I was for the heresy that I was speaking. Yet I believe I was speaking the the truth and which, which reality. Particular part of that did they consider heretical? They thought that there were tremendous advances in treatment of mental patients over the sure. last thirty years. I really disagree with them. Um. They felt that neuroscience does inform the clinical treatment of patients. Again, I disagree with them. I, I've, I've sensed the same thing. I, I, yeah. mean, I don't feel that that's radical, but I guess I'm here because I, in essence, yeah. agree with you. <laughs> yeah. and, and, so, uh, and the field is not going to improve unless we recognize our own progress and limitations. So I'm really interested, as, as you know, I mentioned before, a young trainee and researcher, how, how do you navigate something like that? Like, how do you, as a uh, physician scientist, a mm -hmm. clinical researcher, um, try to marry those two worlds? Like, your research on addiction, on stress, right. you know, yeah. the molecular approach, how do you bring those two together or try to bring those two together while realizing those limitations. Right. So I think the critical ingredient is understanding what is possible and at the same time what the inherent limitations are with either approach. So I've talked about the limitations of clinical psychiatry today, but we should, in, in, to be honest and fair, we should also talk about the limitations in the research. And um, 
this is where being a physician scientist and having the combined training, I think, is absolutely instrumental. If I were a PhD only and I took the viewpoints that I did, I don't think anyone would have paid attention to me. Hmm. But it, it was because that I did get complete clinical training in psychiatry. I did have a clinical practice, small, but it was I was active clinically and cared for uh, patients that I think it forced people to pay attention to the things that I was saying. Uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, when I see basic scientists underestimate the complexity of mental illness, they're falling into the analogous trap. Mm. So as the editor or deputy editor of certain journals, I'll see papers submitted where an author says, we induced depression in a mouse by doing X. We made a mouse schizophrenic by doing Y. And, you know, I laugh at yeah, what does that the mean? <laughs> lack of sophistication of the research. And so just as psychiatrists need to pay attention to the sophistication of the science, the scientists and the animal and cell models people who use animal and cell models need to pay attention to the complexity of mental illness and how it is impossible to capture depression or schizophrenia or mental, any mental illness in a, in an animal, let alone a cell. Sure. So, I mean, and, and, and so that means that one just needs to do the best research possible and take in, incremental steps while at the same time, by being incremental, also being innovative and creative and trying to make the paradigm advances that are needed to uh, achieve progress. Hmm. So I'm imagining you in the early 90s as a young faculty member. Were you director of the Ribikoff Laboratory at that I became director of the Ribikoff Laboratories facilities in 1992. 92, okay. And so you have this molecular enterprise, this clinical enterprise at the same time. And how did you navigate, I guess I could call it, how did you navigate the emotion of like wondering when those two would come together? Or, like, at what point did you realize, this is a lot more complex than I thought as a resident, and I'm unsure that in the next 10 years, right. I'm going to pull this off? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that hit me uh, after I had been on the faculty about 10 years, so probably around the late 1990s or so, it became clear to me as the genetics uh, were appearing far more complicated, and the nervous system appearing far more complicated, that it was going to take a much longer period of time. The, um, you know, the challenges, uh, so around the same time that I joined the faculty, it was actually during my residency, there were the first reports of genetic, of genes that confer risk for mental illness. So this was, these were the Amish studies, uh, one of which implicated the gene for tyrosine hydroxylase in bipolar disorder. Mm. And I remember saying to myself, well, either there's no need for my career. They figured it they're out. Done. <laughs> they're done. Work done. But really, in the back of my mind saying, really? It just didn't make sense to me. 
that the gene that encodes the enzyme that uh, rate limiting for catecholamine biosynthesis, that that's where bipolar disorder comes from is way too simple. And of course, that turned out to be uh, my view, my, my skepticism turned out to be accurate. It's not even considered a risk factor today. Well, so how did you maintain that skepticism of your, of your field and also of your personal research while right. maintaining your motivation? Well, so this is something I tell all of my trainees that I think it's very important for each scientist to be successful, to tell a story and to advocate for one's research findings. So you've got to get up, you've got to write papers, you've got to give research talks where you're telling a story. If you're nihilistic and saying it's hopeless, well, that doesn't do anybody uh, I guess that's good. precisely the word. That's right. an excellent word. Yeah. Like, how do you avoid? Yeah. And like, I know, and I've known, practice. and I've known faculty who've been nihilistic over the years. Yeah. But, but it, you can do both. So you could present the research. This is what we found objectively. This is where we think. This is what we think it's telling us. This is where we think it's bringing us, and where the next steps can lead us. While at the same time retaining some intellectual honesty and self-reflection, not to believe one's Kool-Aid, and to uh, keep in mind the limitations and challenges of the field. It's something that I feel I've been able to do and have really tried to encourage uh, my trainees as co and colleagues to do as well. That one can tolerate that, one yeah. can make advances but also see where they fit in, in the big picture. Right. How have your trainees and your colleagues responded differently to that? You could call it even a stressor. The, there's this huge complexity of the brain. And right. people are looking at a small facet thereof nowadays, right? right? And back then, you know, the tyrosine hydroxylase hypothesis, right. you know, one was tempted and people were tempted to just kind of, you know, close up shop after that, like you mentioned. And now the brain is understood to be so complex that one specific research endeavor is unlikely to unravel the picture. Yeah. It, it, you know, I've seen people uh, get stuck at both opposite ends of the spectrum. Hmm. So there's some people, as we just mentioned, who are nihilistic and who just throw up their hands in exasperation and saying what I'm doing is, you know, too insignificant, uh, it's spinning in the ocean, uh, it's not worth it, I'm just going to quit and do something else. And I've seen people do that. Hmm. At the opposite end of the spectrum, I've seen people who present their research findings with no self-reflection. Uh, and, you know, those are those people who tend to oversell what they're stating, and they're obnoxious. Um, <laughs> That's a great word. You know, uh, <laughs> I think the field gets it right in the middle uh, and just has to deal with both. From a training perspective, however, I think it's very tangible to teach our young students and postdocs and residents how to get it just right hmm. somewhere in the middle. Well, so that maybe that brings us to your, the next stage in your career. So after you were at Yale, you went to Dallas mm -hmm. and... You did you go there as chair of the department? I did. Okay, so that's so you had a much wider sphere of influence over that department. Yes, and so having this 
call it dedication, motivation to your molecular science, mm -hmm. and then also your dedication to clinical practice. How did you balance the need for innovation and training mm -hmm. in clinical practice with the reality of what was going on at the time in that institution? Yeah, so it, it was a tremendous opportunity for me, and at the same time, a tremendous learning experience of uh, what's possible and of what's, uh, what one's limitations are. So I went, I moved to Dallas uh, at UT Southwestern. Which I should say I was born in Dallas. Oh, my gosh. What, I felt really at home when... Uh, yes, the Texas picture <laughs> the up there. The Texas yeah. truck yeah, license that. plate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which town in Dallas did you grow up in? Uh, so I only lived there until I was two. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then I think we lived in Plano okay. at the time. Yeah. And then, uh, so we anyway, lived we in the park out. cities uh, very close to downtown and yeah. close to uh, the med school. Med school, uh, the psychiatry department at the med school was led by Ken Altshuler. It was a very good department, particularly strong clinically. And uh, the leading researchers were John Rush and Raducer Trevetti, uh, very much along the lines of uh, uh, efficacy research in antidepressant uh, treatment. Um, my goals in moving to the department were to build a uh, foundation of basic neuroscience and molecular biology while at the same time building the clinical programs. And I think, you know, we had tremendous success. We were able to move the department, I think, from something like 35th in the country in NIH funding. We broke it into the top 10 wow. in NIH funding. We were number nine um, at the time I left. Um, we recruited a small army of basic neuroscience researchers and molecular biologists and also clinical researchers, because one of the goals was to was to try to build a program uh, that integrated uh, the basic science with the clinical science. The other thing that I did that I felt was very important, and which was my learning curve, was how underfunded and underattended to mental health care was at UT Southwestern in general and in Dallas overall so that there was not sufficient psychiatric resources for the patient population. Parkland Hospital, which you may know is Beautiful fabulous. House, right? it's, well, there's a brand new <laughs> just Parkland. Brand new, yeah. But also Parkland as the county hospital is just a spectacular resource for the people uh, who live in, uh, in Dallas County and, and surrounding areas. Um, the, um, we doubled the size of the clinical service at Parkland Hospital, and we did the same at Children's Hospital and other uh, psych other general hospitals in the area. Hmm. And so we were able to dramatically expand clinical services. But it was at the time of building um, the this department when I realized that there was this divide between the research and the clinical care that was impossible to join, at least at the present time. I'd like to learn more about that. So mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, I, I obviously don't have the perspective that you do of any department, mm -hmm. but I've noticed even when interviewing for residency mm -hmm. programs that different programs have different personalities, different affinities to specific theories of treatment. Um, one that comes to mind is for instance, uh, Wash U in St. Louis, they're very psychopharm-oriented, biology-based, mm -hmm. whereas other institutions, I mean, I think of Yale being more psychodynamically oriented and kind of the East Coast schools being more psychodynamically oriented generally. And so um, 
how you stepping in as a new person mm-hmm. in Dallas, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a very, uh, uh, a city with a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you find in terms of kind of the general personality of the clinical teams? Like, were they more... It was, uh, to be honest, it was a tremendously refreshing change. Hmm. So when I was at Yale, and I had been there a long time, 27 years from undergrad, undergrad, MD, PhD, residency, faculty. When I left the Yale Department of Psychiatry, I left a department that I felt was fractured between those three focuses that I mentioned earlier, neuroscience, hospital community psychiatry, and psychodynamic psychiatry. And those three factions were at each other's throats in the Yale department so that when something good happened to one, rather than everyone else being happy, people were jealous and angry. And moving to Dallas and being part of a new department was probably the most important psychotherapeutic event in my own lifetime. What do you mean by that? Because I realized that I was part of this disagreement and strife among different views of psychiatry. And when I got to Dallas, Ken Altshuler as the uh, as my predecessor and other faculty there made it very clear that it was unnecessary hmm. to disagree. And really that the challenge at hand was to make our patients better. And so what I found at Dallas among the psychodynamically oriented faculty, the hospital and community uh, psychiatrists, was a tremendous uh, uh, welcoming to consider any approach that would help them get their patients better. It's very pragmatic. Extremely (laughs) pragmatic. So in fact, one of the things I did with Ken's help was to invite the Dallas Psychoanalytical Institute to basically join the department. Hmm. So here I was building basic neuroscience, molecular biology, expanding hospital community psychiatry. The Dallas Psychoanalytical Institute was housed within my department, just a floor under my office. And they were not beforehand. They were not. They were in the community, and they were, and you know they were part. They were affiliated with the department, but not so tightly. Interesting. And so we worked hard with our residency training director, Paul Mole, and others to provide an education for our residents that reflected that integration. Hmm. And I felt that that was a really nice achievement. And so it really reflects very well on the uh, psychiatric community in Dallas and UT Southwestern overall to be more flexible, more reasonable, um, more agile and nimble uh, than a far superior department uh, at the time, which was at Yale. But it speaks to the value of being new and being on the frontier and being able to do things differently as opposed to being part of a several hundred year old enterprise where things get stodgy and set in concrete. And, you know, so my criticism of an old department is, or let me phrase it more positively, the challenge for an old established department is to find a way to retain the innovation so that they can continue to uh, adapt 
positively to uh, all the new advances that are coming from the field? I feel like you must be an extremely charismatic person to balance <laughs> tradition, which is how a lot of people view their clinical practice, mm -hmm. especially older clinicians, with this innovative stance that you're promoting. You know, I, I, I don't like to um, toot my own horn, but I think that the one thing that I can do, that I do do, is respect what other people are good at and recognize what I'm good at. So I would never uh, put myself up as a model clinician. You know, I've had a limited clinical experience in my career. And so it was easy when I moved to Dallas and I met this army of outstanding clinicians to respect and admire and appreciate what they did. And, and I think that made it possible for them in turn to, uh, be extremely enthusiastic about this brave new world mm -hmm. of molecular biology and neuroscience that I was exposing them to. So you fostered an environment of mutual respect then. And even when I'm trying to understand that dynamic sure. more. Um, so I've sensed that uh, some people feel threatened by novelty or by innovation in such a way that they become more entrenched in tradition. Yeah. And so, uh, especially given the limitations of your science, which largely still exists today mm -hmm. clinically, I mean, marrying those two seems that it would have been very complex. <laughs> yeah. You know, so to your point, I would say you asked me earlier about the reactions to the Laboratory of Molecular Psychiatry is a provocation within the Yale Department of Psychiatry. The people who were probably most negative and threatened were the other neurobiologists. No kidding. Not the no. hospital community psychiatrists or the psycho uh, psychoanalysts. I think that they were, as I said, saw me as a curiosity or intrigued and interested. Huh. It was the neurobiologists because it was they I was referring to when I was saying you guys are not taking the full sophistication of what's available in neuroscience and applying it to questions relevant to psychiatry. I hadn't imagined that. So how do you, how do you navigate that conversation? That was uh, probably one of the greatest points of awkwardness and contention in my early years on the faculty. Not everybody was happy after five years of me being a, uh, a provocative assistant professor and this is a loud mouth, uh, uh, at Yale, loudmouth assistant professor for me to be named the director of the Ribicoff facilities. Uh, not everybody. Now, you have a pulpit. Our, <laughs> now that's right. Not everybody was happy with that. So as chair, then you were able to both encourage the development of the neurobiology and then also help build the clinical practice both quite significantly. So you said yes. the shift in funding yes. was dramatic, yeah. as was the growth in clinical practices. Yes. And so you were still of uh, very much, you know, the physician and the scientist mm -hmm. building both. Um, how did you, how do you do something like that? Did you, you had instant buy-in from the community there and then everyone kind of banded together in their respective 
parts or how did you avoid that fracturing of a department that you said? You know, I don't know the answer to your question, but I can say in retrospect that I felt that there was very little resistance mm. to doing just what you said. Whereas in contrast, I had spent 13 years on the Yale psychiatry faculty and I was part of a tremendous degree of fractionation uh, that was evident to me and many other people. So I don't know what was so different. Hmm. Fascinating. You know, just, it could be the newness. Dallas is a newer city. UT Southwestern is a newer school. The psychiatric community is smaller, less established. Uh, the faculty were newer. You know, there's this frontier spirit yeah. that is, is positive. Yeah. So then your transition from Dallas back to East Coast yep. into New York, that was also another position of leadership. Yes. Now you're a dean of scientific affairs mm -hmm. and... Uh, um, dean for academic and academic scientific and affairs, scientific essentially dean for research. Okay. Um, and when I moved to Mount Sinai, I was director of the Friedman Brain Institute, which was charged with bringing all neuroscience together on campus. So this is an ideal opportunity for me, which what is what appealed to me so much about it, is that it was a platform where I could now, at a bigger scale, bridge basic neuroscience, neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery now oh, right, uh, yeah. into these integrated research to clinical programs. The Mount Sinai Department of Psychiatry is an interesting uh, entity in itself with, an, with a long culture that jived very well with this goal. So uh, a longtime chair of the department is Ken Davis, who is now our CEO. And Ken built the Mount Sinai Department of Psychiatry on a very strong biological model. So while you mentioned that many East Coast schools tend to be more psychodynamically oriented, that's not the case here at Mount Sinai. We have very strong clinical programs, very strong psychodynamic psychiatrists, but the heart and soul of the department has been focused around the brain. Hmm. Um, so it's been a fabulous substrate for me. The funding that's available in New York City through philanthropy and uh, through Mount Sinai has been an order of magnitude greater even than what was available in Dallas and has made it possible for us to sustain, I think, an unprecedented degree of growth across our uh, basic neuroscience, clinical neuroscience, and clinical treatment programs uh, across the different departments. So, and I'm talking about 50 new basic science faculty, 50 wow. new clinical science faculty, hundreds of new clinicians, and so on. Wow. And you mentioned something that was, that kind of piqued my interest of how now you are able to have an even higher level view over neurosurgery, neurology, and psychiatry. And I'm curious what differences you see or if the, you know, specific to molecular neuroscience, yep. whether you feel that that has been integrated in some way differently through those medical or specialties. Sure. You and know, why that would be. Yeah, you know, definitely to this day, the uh, neuroscience per se is far more integrated in neurology than the other two disciplines, least so in psychiatry by far. Uh, our neurology residents meet weekly 
for lunch over a lunch hour where there are brain scans on the board and discussions of genes and uh, protein aggregates contributing to neurodegenerative disorders and so on. Uh, and that's the psychiatry resident lunches. It's unusual to have a brain scan on the board and unusual to talk about genes, partly because the science hasn't yet provided the information that is clinically relevant for the residents to take care of their patients of the day. Neurosurgery is also very focused on the brain, obviously, you know, from a more practical, uh, manipulating point of view of how one can go into the brain, dissect pathway cells, circuits safely uh, and uh, with innovative devices and uh, imaging equipment. And you're still, you still have an ongoing laboratory. I still have a, my basic science lab. Which is amazing. <laughs> you're so busy doing all of these things. Um, I, I'm curious how you guide your graduate students or postdocs and that sort of conversation you have to someone looking to have a clinical impact in a, a brain-based disease specialty. Mm-hmm. Um what is that conversation like? So say I was a postdoc or a grad student and I was like, I want to do something that'll have clinical impact. Mm -hmm. Kind of the way that you felt when you were a resident, how would that conversation go? Well, I say it would be twofold. One would be for the PhDs and the other would be for the physician scientists, the MD PhDs, because it'd be different uh, conversations. For most of the graduate students and postdocs who were in my lab, by joining my lab, they've already stated their interest in working in disease-oriented research, doing basic research, but within models of uh, psychiatric or neurologic diseases. And what I think my lab can provide them is a good pathway or template on how they could fashion their careers as well. For MD-PhDs, uh, it's been more problematic for me. And I've thought a lot about this. I have tried. I've had probably over 20 MD-PhDs in my lab over the last 30 years. And I have, I've thought I've tried to convince every single one of them to go into psychiatry. As of now, uh, if my numbers are correct, I think only one has. Most have gone into neurology and a few in other disciplines. And I've thought about why that is. I think one of the reasons is that when my MD-PhD students finish in the lab and go back to the clinic, they're all gung-ho for psychiatry. And then they do their psychiatry clerkship and they realize that there's no science in clinical psychiatry. And where I, I was willing to make the leap and say, that's okay, I can bring the science to psychiatry, that's an opportunity for me, for whatever reason, these individuals are not willing to make that leap. They want to join a discipline where the science is already there. What do you suppose the difference is? I, just generally curious. I mean, obviously, you're the guy who wrote the book about yeah. science. And yeah, I don't know. We, we, we certainly see a good number of MD-PhDs go into psychiatry. A bit more than went into psychiatry in my year. But frankly, nationally, we don't see the army of MD-PhD students who want to go into oncology or immunology, for example. It's a different level in those other fields. And I, I don't know what that difference is, but we're continuing to see about the same number, choose it, but not the people in my lab. Hmm. I think it's... So then I have to take some of the responsibility myself 
And then I thought, well, gee, maybe there is something about the way that I've been presenting psychiatry, even though I love the field of psychiatry and I am ferociously loyal to it while I am a loyal critic. Um, maybe the criticism that I've made of psychiatry has filtered into my students in a way that has turned them off to the field. So I've, in the last 10 years since moving to Mount Sinai, I've been very conscious of that and tried to be a lot more positive with my students and muted my criticism. But to be honest, I haven't seen a change <laughs> in their choice of psychiatry. So I don't know. Maybe they, I don't know why. Maybe they sense that in their clinical rotations. Well, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, many thanks to Eric for being on the podcast and letting me take in a little over an hour from his day. Uh, such a busy fellow. It was a real treat to not only meet him in person, but also to essentially have fair game to pick his brain about whatever. Such a delightful guy. Uh, you can learn more about Eric and his work, obviously on Wikipedia, but you can also check out his faculty profile page at Mount Sinai. Or you can find his articles on Google Scholar, just searching for Eric Nessler. Uh, Eric is also the author of multiple books on pharmacology, which uh, they're not exactly uh, for the layman, but I found them immensely helpful when I've been studying my pharmacology. Um, thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast, to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, and to Ryan McAvoy for his help sound editing. A special thanks to you for listening. Again, my name is Daniel Barron, and I've been your host, and I'll see you next time here on Science at All.